0: Welcome to the I Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible out loud, chapter by chapter. We're reading this together today, Exodus chapter 17. So this is yet another one of these little moments here where the plagues seem to be undone. And you, you get a very explicit uh, mention of that here in this chapter 17, where, I mean, God is even basically broadcasting this to the Israelites saying, hey, look, remember what I did in Egypt? Well, I'm going to undo it for you guys and just uh, so so full of uh, meaning there uh, the other part of this chapter in 17 really interesting this is the first time we seem to get battle here where actually the the people of israel are going into battle and um, you get this narration a little bit with joshua here so uh you know this is an interesting turn of events that they're already fighting here um in some ways uh, prefiguring and uh, foreshadowing what we're going to see in the book of Joshua. So um, an interesting chapter here, a few different things going on. Joining us today we've got Pastor Dan Eddy, pastor at Messiah Lutheran Church in, let me see here, is this Beloit? Beloit, Wisconsin. Bel- Beloit, yeah, I was like, is it, is it Beloit? No, it's not Beloit, it's Beloit. Beloit, Wisconsin. Good morning, brother. How are you and the brothers and sisters in Beloit doing this morning?
1: We are doing fine. Thank you for inviting me to be on your program today.
0: Yeah, it's great to have you. And uh, this is this is a neat chapter here. Where, uh, I mean, this is the first time that you've you've seen this. I mean, everything so far, right? It's really striking. You you think of the Exodus and the Israelites. They they don't have to do any of the fighting, right? You get that comment at the Red Sea. All you have to do is be still, right? I'm going to fight for you. Uh, but here, God actually sends them into battle in this chapter. So it's a it's an interesting turn here.
1: It certainly is, and also it parallels a lot of things that have already been going on, and there's a lot of par- parallels to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, as Moses is acting as a Christ-like figure.
0: Uh, certainly, and I think that um, we'll we'll have to look at some of the symbolism there in the, in the in the in the image of Moses, particularly with this you know lifting up of his hands idea. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think without spoiling too much uh, to your point, uh, certainly a prefiguring of Christ our Lord. Uh, so yeah, good stuff today. Uh, as we get started, Brother, was you, go ahead and open us up with a prayer.
1: Let us pray. Heavenly Father, through your Son, your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. By the Holy Spirit, empower our study of your Word this morning, through careful reading, listening, and learning, so that we may inwardly digest your word for strength and faith, increased understanding, careful discernment, and application for living your word, so we may walk by faith and not by sight, in order that others may see and hear your good works being done through us for your glory and honor. In the name of Jesus, our resurrected and ascended Lord and Savior, we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. All right. So as we
0: turn to the chapter here, we're going to go ahead and just read this uh, straight through. What should we be keeping in mind um, just to get ourselves ready to hear this? I mean, any, any key words or maybe, maybe uh, particular names that we ought to uh, stop and make sure we understand, things
1: like that? Well, the first word in here, congregation, it's very interesting. That word, at least in the English Standard Version Bible, is not used until the instructions for the Passover. And then it's used a few Mm -hmm. times... So it's very interesting that the people of Israel are referred to as a congregation. So that's one of the things that we note. The other thing is the timing Mm. to the Pharaoh's army being destroyed in the Red Sea. This is only happening two and a half to three months after the defeat of Pharaoh's army. And I think that that's right. significant because it shows you how quickly uh, many of the Israelites are fleeing from the faith that God gave them uh, by rescuing them from the slavery that their people had been in for four hundred years.
0: Yeah, yeah, that really is interesting when you when you try to put it all together on the timeline here that it it does seem really fast. Um, you know, and, and we talked about that certainly. When we're looking at uh, chapter 16 last time that um, or I guess even even actually in chapter uh, 15 that, you know, here we get the parting of the Red Sea. Right. And then it's like, well, but hey, but where's water? You know, I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's like three days into the wilderness (laughs) and we already have the grumbling. So, um, yeah, from from that perspective, it it does it does feel like it's it's rather fast. Um, Yeah. Something to just keep in mind, I think, as we go ahead and look at this here so uh so here it is without any further ado chapter 17 in the english standard version from the top all the congregation of the people of israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the lord and camped at rephidim but there was no water for the people to drink therefore the people quarreled with moses and said give us water to drink and moses said to them why do you quarrel with me why do you test the lord But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord. So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand a staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then uh, Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hurst held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. When the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it on the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So, yeah, a couple of really interesting scenes. And um, I I think that one of the things um, that I always um, think about, you know, like it's it's really easy to read these as two separate chapters and just kind of not think anything of it. Uh, But it is interesting that the thing that kind of to me anyway, that jumps out as something that ties these two halves together, is um, the staff. Um, and, and it's really interesting that you get this phrase here in verse 9, the staff of God. And I was looking at that in the Hebrew, and it's like, it's a very particular phrase. Um, it's not Aaron's staff, it's not Moses' staff, it's the staff of God. And, and, it, and it's really quite striking how, kind of whether it's giving water or defeating the Amalekites, it's the staff of God that's actually making this happen, and uh, it's just really it's 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 just really something here. How kind of in both scenes, Moses is shown as, as not the star, but uh, just the guy who's holding the staff, and, and God's really the one at work. What what do you, what stands out to you looking at this chapter as a whole?
1: Oh, well, the staff is a symbol of authority and power. And think about how often the staff has been used uh when when we look at the events of just Moses' life. Look at how often the staff was used in uh the the plagues, as you had described earlier, this is kind of the undoing of the plagues, but uh look at that authority. I mean it I mean right in the uh Horeb, which is where they're heading toward, uh you know, the first thing when um Moses is being called by God, you, you have the staff, and he's like, what am I supposed to do with this? And <laughs> and he shows them <laughs> yeah. that his power works through means. And I think that's a very important right. thing to, to look at here, is that Moses is a means of God to convey his grace and mercy, and also his judgment. Also, that staff is doing the same thing. It is a means of grace, if you will, in this case, because they certainly didn't deserve the water. And they Certainly didn't deserve the military victory. So you could look at the staff as a means of grace, an undeserved gift, or a means of mercy. Uh, what they deserved was to die in the desert. They deserved to be defeated, and yet that staff became an instrument to show God's mercy.
0: Yeah, certainly. You know, just I, I like you know your thoughts are just kind of thinking about you know, what does a staff mean, and, um, and and thinking of it as a symbol of authority, and that's that that's something that we really kind of i think easily overlook um you know i think i think i i suppose we think of a shepherd staff I think that happens um rather readily for us i mean there's like church software right called shepherd staff right <laughs> i mean like you know it's like it's its it's in our like lingo right it's just you know you're, there's Jesus the shepherd he's got his staff and um yeah, I mean, you think of Psalm twenty-three, and you think of you know your staff, you know, guides me, and and so I think we think of it very much in kind of like the pastoral sense, but you know, do we, do we think of it as like a a symbol of of kingly authority? And that really is something because even back when we were thinking about the the, the standoff between God and Pharaoh, um, you know, it was pretty standard that the pharaohs would actually have a, a staff. It was a little ceremonial thing um it wasn't you know so that they could like walk on or it wasn't a walking stick but i mean it was a, it was a very clear symbol of power and when you had you know staff of moses versus staff of uh pharaoh i mean i think everyone kind of got the message that it was an issue of who has the greater authority
1: yes Absolutely. I love your tie into Psalm 23, because it does show in, in Psalm 23 how thy staff and thy rod, they comfort me. Again, mm-hmm. in utilizing the staff not just as an instrument of power of God's judgment, but all, which would have been against Pharaoh and his army, but also uh, an instrument of God's grace and mercy. And, and that psalm brings uh, that out uh, even more as a comfort to us who are his sheep, well yeah no certainly i I think that you the
0: the two they go together and we've talked about that a little bit how that that shepherd metaphor it's not um this it's not separate from the kingly metaphor that um i mean it is just as in the way that you know um moses was (laughs) literally as we saw a shepherd right for a time and then he takes on this this kingly role um you know which is which is really interesting too uh because of course you know uh, having been um, you know, raised in the house of Pharaoh, right? Like, there's yeah another connection to like that kingly role and and shepherding, right? So, so yeah. So similarly, when we look at this 23rd Psalm, we see that um, yeah, our Lord Jesus, he, he's not um, he's a guide and he's a comfort, but not like a you know like a buddy life coach kind of way, but as a, as a king who who rules with with, with care, a, a king who rules. Um, not with ruthlessness, but with compassion and with genuine love for his subjects.
1: Well, in the image here, to to add to your point, the idea of now the staff being used with a rock and with water Mm symbolically ties to uh, you know, God, the Lord God, Jesus Christ being our rock and our salvation and Mm -hmm. there is a number of Psalms that tie that rock of salvation to to it. And then the water element is also brought out uh, as well. I think of rock and salvation, Psalm 18, verse 2 the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. Certainly, God is delivering mm-hmm. them in the desert from uh, thirst. Okay, my God, mm-hmm. my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. Certainly, That staff provided protection for the Israelites as they are are fighting the Amalekites. And so that imagery is brought out here in Psalms. Interestingly, um, uh, the Massa and Meribib and this event, I cannot believe how many times it is recorded in the Psalms, uh, either as a resume of God's great works that he has done to be remembered, like Psalm 78 brings out, or just mentioned in... shame on our people because of the way they acted here, where they were chiding Moses and they were tempting God, you know, and so, uh, but back to the, the staff and the rock idea, then you have the water idea, I mean, talk, look at Jesus and how he talked to the woman at the well, and uh, yep. and he said, the water I'm going to give you, you'll never thirst again. So now that imagery uh, becomes full force and is completed in Christ. In and now he's distinguishing himself from just normal water. When he tells the woman, the water I give you, you'll never thirst right.
2: again.
1: You know, And whoever believes yeah. in me, uh, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water, as he said a few chapters later in John chapter 7.
0: Certainly. So, so I mean that really is a neat tie-in. So you can see how this is this uh, the shepherding um, metaphor really at work in a vivid way that you know god is having compassion on them and you know with his staff right you know it's called in in verse 9 the staff of god so it's you know god with his staff shepherding his people and taking them to a place with water right Um, and it is interesting too i think that's highlighted when they make their complaint why did you bring us up out of egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock they mentioned the livestock right which i think kind of highlights again that that kind of pastoral image that you know uh, re- really, like, all of this, <laughs> this crowd, whether it's the parents, the children, or the animals, is all the flock uh, of God here. But the, the other thing, the other side of it is, is the image of, of making water come out of a rock. I mean, that's, that's pretty interesting, especially given that—and um, it, and it's interesting here, right? Because he says, you know, the water—where uh, does he say it? It's verse 5, right? Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go— and then he says, strike the rock. So, I mean, there's this deliberate connection that God himself is making in his speech to Moses between striking the Nile and striking the rock. Um, and, I, and I think that's pretty interesting to consider that this image of, of striking the rock is also meant to be
1: playing off the plagues.
0: And, and what do you I mean, I don't know, how, how do you connect the dots in thinking about that?
1: I like the way that you're connecting the dots on that, um, in that there there is a continuity here in the way that God is ruling his people. And he's hoping, I think, that his children, the children of Israel, the congregation, is picking up on these parallels. I mean, why would right. God bring people out? Why would he bring his chosen people, liberate them from 400 mm-hmm. years of slavery, just to bring them out And after two and a half months, let them die in the desert. I mean, did they really think that that's what God was going to do to them? Or um, they not want to face the fact that, uh, you know, you have the desert motif here that kind of combines with it, in that they had no choice but to trust God. And he brought them out in the desert to get them away from all the distractions that they had 400 years in slavery. I think sometimes we as pastors give the impression that the Israelites, when they were in 400 years of slavery, were very faithful and they knew who God was and they were just waiting for him one day to liberate them. No, Exodus right. 3 would indicate that they didn't know who God was anymore. They had lost okay. who the real meaning of God was. And that's why Moses said, well, who, who should I say sent me? you know, the God of mm-hmm. Abraham, Isaac yep. and Jacob, and, and that wasn't good enough because I guess right. you could imply they didn't know their own history that well. And he says, yeah, yep. um, you know, what is your name? What is your name? Because all the mm-hmm. Egyptian gods had names. And the famous, yep. I am who I am, tell them I am has sent me to you. So there, there's also a process here where, yes, God has liberated them, uh, in a in a sense, their version of baptism, but they also needed to be taught. And God was going to teach them a few things. And one of them was you had gods that while you were in slavery, you had a fertile land, you had food. And now we're going to shed all of that, those gods, so to speak. And you're going to have to rely totally on me for even the basics of life, like food and water.
0: God, I think that's really well said. That you know, you know, because we we were asking that question, you know. Well, so what's going on with the with the plague sequence, right? Like, why is God doing all this stuff when He knows that Pharaoh's just going to be stubborn, right? And what's He say? Well, so that all my wonders will be worked and revealed, and that all of you and all of Egypt will see and know that there is none like me in all the earth, and I am here in the midst of Egypt, right? So it's that revelation idea. So uh, I think, you know, I mean, it's true that this gets picked up, as you were saying, in the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture a a lot in the New Testament, right, Um, about the people, God complaining and it's demonstrating their faithlessness. Uh, But I I think that more important than that, this episode is really just supposed to be highlighting uh, foremost— the, the faithful and powerful working of God in His in His provision. That you know, why, why would God take them to these barren places, to these places with no water? Why would he Why would he take them to the you know the middle of nowhere, right? So that he could reveal just how he was going to provide for his people. And, and it really is striking. Um, I just keep using this word, um, striking. How when he strikes this rock, it, it really is connecting to these first three plagues because. And those in those first three wonders, right, you had the the staff, right, which he casts down and it becomes a sea serpent of some kind, a sea snake. And so similarly, back in chapter fifteen, he casts down this piece of wood this log or something and it makes the water drinkable right so i mean there's this kind of parallel of like casting down this wood stick and some kind of water thing is worked from this and then now here um it's kind of similar to the striking of the nile we strike the rock um and then i think the kind of like the, the last kind of parallel with the kind of the three water wonders at the beginning of the plague sequence is that i mean it's interesting the frogs they go from the water and they overwhelm the land and here, it's just the opposite. Instead, you've got from the land comes out water for them. I mean, so it, it, really, it really just, to me, I'm just like, wow, this is really something, just like you were saying about those gods that all had names back in Egypt, particularly Hopi, um, the, which, is, which is not a, like a pun on frogs, by the way. Just that, That's coincidence in English. Um, but, but you had that god, Hopi, right, who was like their water Nile flood god, right? Um, and well, very well-known, associated with these things like serpents and frogs and, and the Nile and all this. Um, and, and here, God is just showing how, hey, I've got I've got Hoppy beat. I mean, Hoppy can't make water come out of a rock. He can't turn bitter waters that would poison you into sweet waters. I mean, it, it's just showing his complete mastery as he just does, does the opposite. Hey, I guys, I can play it forward or I can play it backwards. Check this out.
1: Well, and it shows that they not only didn't deserve what they had received, but it showed that even though they saw this miracle, that, that, they, that some of these people didn't have faith leading up to this event. Otherwise, why wouldn't they have, uh, and, and here's an application for our prayer life, if we start off our day with God, give me, give me, give me, the idea here is yep. that uh, God owed them, God owed them water, God didn't owe them water. And so their arrogance at uh, tempting God and then chiding Moses to the point of stoning him uh, is, is, is remarkable because it really shows a lack of faith. And I think there's a great application for Americans today. We have been blessed beyond merit or measure. And so what happens when we take a few away of our luxuries over the last couple of months where we have to wear a mask and stay six foot apart from each other and we go to the grocery store and they're out of certain items or things are more expensive now or there there's unemployment. And it's very easy to get in a whiny complaining mode as Americans like the Israelites were, and yeah. yet, you know, to think about it. Just a few months ago, we had everything, well, most people, I won't say everyone in America, but many, most Americans have everything that they want, where even the poorest among us is still richer than 80% of the world. And yet, sure. when, when those things are taken away, it's very easy to whine and complain that uh, God doesn't love us anymore because he's not meeting our standards, our expectations. Well, the Israelites... Had a, a similar issue, in their whining, and their grumbling, and their complaining. Certainly, I, you know, it is it is
0: striking that you know there's here this grumbling, and it, I mean it really is something because uh, it's someone like might be having deja vu as they read this, right? Because it's like, hang on a second, didn't we already have this complaining about water thing? Well, well, yeah, I mean back back in fifteen, it was like the very first thing that happened right after the Red Sea, um, and, and it really is. Uh, you, you just think to yourself, I mean, like, really just that they're, they're going to complain about it that often, that much, uh, you, you know, how how is it that that's even possible? But I mean, just to your point, right? I mean, it's just human nature. It's almost like um, it, it's like we, we we suffer from this abundance, right? That like when things go well. We, we're just all the more likely to complain you know it's like we're like spoiled children as you were saying right you know that, that sense of entitlement uh, I think there's a few other points that we can really connect for our own contemporary life and um, as you were saying our prayer life but it's time for our break but everybody hang on we're looking at Exodus chapter 17 here on Thy strong word we'll be right back <laughs>
1: LCMS Disaster Response and Training provides guidance
0: and counsel to congregations seeking to show mercy to their neighbors before, during, and after disasters. From congregation preparedness to equipping volunteers in our Lutheran Early Response Team training, we can help you engage your community, particularly those who are suffering in any way with the love of Christ. For more information, you can follow us on Facebook, keyword LCMS Disaster Response, or visit our website at lcms.org forward slash disaster. This week on Issues Etc., we'll discuss a Lutheran justification for political resistance with Dr. Ryan McPherson, We'll talk to Abigail Schreier about the transgender craze seducing our daughters, and we'll have Pastor Peter Bender lead us in a teaching on Lutheran piety in the home. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. Welcome back, everybody, to Thy Strong Word i'm pastor aj espinosa we're looking at exodus chapter 17 today we were just talking with our guest pastor dan eddie pastor at messiah lutheran church in beloit wisconsin about how there's really a lot of connections here between our own situations and the situation of the israelites that we really you know just we, we keep seeing this theme you know we really cannot be so hard on them when we do the same sorts of things complaining so quickly even in the midst of the abundance that God gives us here. If you have any questions for for me or Pastor Eddie or some comments or maybe some connections of your own, uh, give us a call, 1-800-730-2727, if you're listening live. Also, if you're in St. Louis, 314-821-0850, or you can send an email to kfuo at kfuo.com org also want to make sure to thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation their website lhfmissions.org and um, we already, already had one comment come in uh, actually uh, on Facebook the, the, the stream isn't going today but just a little question or comment here so it's um, you know it, it's interesting here that the 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 shepherd staff right is a is not just a way of guiding uh, the sheep but it's also a club of sorts, right? You talk about um, David, you know, grabbing a lion by the beard and striking it, right? And so there, there is this kind of sense where uh, it's actually kind of natural that there would be this this striking of the rock. And, and actually, um, it—I have to stop saying this. I'm not going to say it struck me. Um, it just hit me <laughs> as you were speaking earlier. Um, they, isn't it interesting that they were about to stone him, right? And then what's he do? He's like, oh, so you you're going to go and use stones to kill people. Okay, well, I don't like that idea. So he takes the the club, right, his his rod, his staff, and he strikes it. Well, and and perhaps there is a little bit of judgment against that. You know, no, that's not the way Uh, here. You want to take life with rocks? I'm going to give life with rocks. This is the way.
2: Well, he ended up kind of doing that uh, about 40 years later, when I believe they were back at this area, and the same problem occurred. And God told him at that time to speak to the rock, and instead he beat the rock there. And you could say that probably after 40 years of grumbling, Moses had had it. But then God said, well, I've had it with you. You can't do that. You can't rebel against me. And then serve as my servant. So uh, it's interesting about the 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 staff being used as an instrument of judgment, because I think that's what Moses was doing without the permission of God. Uh, years later, yeah. I think it numbers twenty. Um, yeah. Numbers 20, verses 2 and following. Uh-huh. And, and you would think they would learn from their own history in the same place that uh, if he provided water 40 years ago, why wouldn't he provide water 40 years later when they're about ready to embark and going into the promised land?
0: Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You
2: know, that, that is interesting to, to connect this scene
0: with the numbers scene in chapter 20. And and, and you wonder, I mean, we, we looked at this when we went through numbers. It was some time ago already, you know, but you know, what, what, what was it so bad about it? But it, we, we saw there in that scene, you know, Moses, he gets really high and mighty. Right. You know, and there in numbers, 20 verse 10 here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Right. And so uh, and then he goes and strikes it twice. Right, as if it's kind of once for Moses and once for Aaron. So he's turning into the Moses and Aaron show, right? Rather than the focus being on on God. And um, you know, yeah, it's true that there is a, a quarrelling there. Um, but it is interesting that there, in chapter 20, there isn't any mention uh, that they're about to stone Moses and Aaron, right? So you almost wonder if it's if the, the problem is Moses and Aaron are wanting to kind of let themselves be the judges um, and then they're kind of just going after this and kind of having this kind of uh, really kind of disproportionate anger which you know I mean we talked about it, it's very humanly understandable. you deal with 40 years of are we there yet? And yeah, you'd probably be cranky too. Uh, but you know in this case here in Exodus, you know it's God uh, striking down the the anger and the wrath of his people, right. So I mean there's a difference between God as the judge, Judging human wrathfulness and then ourselves as judges just uh, excusing our own wrathfulness in the name of piety
2: didn't jesus uh wasn't he threatened to be stoned he said what what are you going to stone yeah. me for what what good works yeah. are you going to stone me for uh you know when he mentioned that what is it in John somewhere in John I believe that that is he made that uh, reference so it's interesting the parallel there that uh, they wanted to stone Moses and guess what they wanted to stone Jesus for what doing yeah. good works yeah. for providing yeah. <laughs>
0: Right. Yeah, absolutely. And well, actually, you know, that might be as good a segue as any um, to the second section of this uh, chapter here, because, you know, I think that you really see even more of those Christological connections in the second half. You know, because we see this, uh, you know, here comes the staff again and you've got Joshua who goes out to, to fight. Moses gives his direction to Joshua to choose these men. Um, and so he goes and fights. And so this, this is, I mean, that's interesting all by itself, of course, because this is kind of the first scene, I think, where Joshua is kind of, I mean, we've had a mention before, but first scene where he kind of like comes onto the scene and does something uh, big. And so what's he doing here? Well, um, yeah, he's he's getting sent to go and fight the enemies of God's people. He's going to go and uh, fight and give them salvation, uh, victory, which is exactly, you know, of course, Joshua, Jesus, that's his That's his name. So there's that connection there. Uh, but there's this, it's so interesting because it's the staff being lifted up. And when Moses has the staff lifted up, they're winning. When the staff isn't lifted up, uh, they're, they're losing. And I, I mean, John does so much with this, right, in his gospel that, you know when when Jesus our lord speaks you know when when i am lifted up right when i'm lifted up on the cross you know on on the wood right on the tree um you know it's and some there's some linguistic connections between like a staff or a rod and and a, a tree or a pole or a or a cross it's kind of being like the same same idea same kind of image so when when he is lifted up we have victory we have salvation we have life um, when we try to take it down when we try to dismiss the cross or try to find salvation by some other way um, so that we're kind of virtually uh, lowering the cross, well, then there's no salvation to be had.
1: Exactly. Um, and it, 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 that fits perfectly. If Jesus wouldn't have died for us, we would have faced a fate worse than the Amalekites. Or, uh, really to right. think about that. Uh, if yeah. would, uh, we wouldn't have, if, if Moses wouldn't have raised his hands, the Israelites would have been defeated. If Christ's hands were not raised and nailed to the cross, we would have faced a certain defeat from the ultimate Amalekite, which is Satan. So the, the parallels here are, are very striking in in the power of Jesus' hands being nailed to the cross versus the power that God used through Moses to deliver the Israelites from the Amalekites. Well, yeah, and that's the other side of it,
0: too, uh, that I was kind of hinting at, like, in our opening here, that there's the connection of, of the staff itself being lifted up, like the cross. There's uh, Joshua, you know, Jesus, going out and fighting the enemies of God. But then, like what you're saying, um, Moses lifting up his hands, right? You can just, you picture him doing this in this cruciform way, right? That He's lifting up his hands, and what's it say? He gets tired, Right. Uh, he he gets tired of holding up his hands for, for like the whole day like this so that he needs help to have his hands lifted well, well, up. And isn't that something so he has his two men? Well,
1: well, God, go ahead. I think we would too. I mean, we got to remember Moses is 80 well. years old here. And uh, sure. I don't know about you. And, and the idea from the scripture, because uh, you'll note that Uh, only the NIV for uses always uses the word hands in the plural, whereas the other uh, more literal English translations use hand, and then they use hands, plural. So the idea is that, like, okay, he starts with the right hand holding up the staff, and then when that didn't work, then he switched hands and he held it up with the other (laughs) one, and then eventually that became uh, very tiresome, switching back and forth, so they set him on a stone, okay, and then they say, okay, you know, uh, her and uh, Aaron, okay, we, we each Take an arm and we, we hold it up, you know, and so and it shows that um, that still the power was coming from God. It really was. Right. The power is not coming oh, well, from it, Moses. And I think that it's kind
0: of some of the brilliance of this image here, because on the one hand, I mean, absolutely, it's just kind of a, a very natural image of you. you know, anyone who's had to, like, you know, hold their hands up above their head. and I mean, if, even if you're holding, like, nothing, um, your hands get tired so fast. I remember um, my wife and I, like, just whether it was, like, we were, like, replacing our garage door opener or, like... You know, a light fixture. When you have to just like stand there and just hold your hands above your head, it's just it feels like an eternity. So of course, I think we all relate to that. But just just think about the image, right? You've got you've got this man here who's holding up his arms, and they're getting tired. So these two men, on one on each side, have to hold up his hands as he sits on this rock, and like i 'm not saying that like all this like didn 't happen, and it 's all just like a metaphor um no it 's typology, so it really did happen, but just look how beautiful the typology is because, as our Lord right was on the rock of Golgotha right like the the, the rock, the place of the skull, and there were these two men, one on either side of him, as his arms were growing hmm. weary as he had his arms stretched out for our salvation. I mean, like, I don't, I don't know how to line up Aaron and her with the, with the two thieves. But I mean, like, just, just picture both images side by side, and it's, I mean, wow, that really stands out.
1: Well, there's a similarity, but there's a difference. The reason why Jesus' hands were nailed to the cross is because of us, in a way, because of our sinfulness. We held up Jesus' hands on the cross, and uh, even though uh, what her and Aaron were doing was very virtuous, okay, they're holding it up. So that uh, victory would be theirs, okay? In the case of, well, Jesus, uh, because of our sins, Jesus was able to be victorious from the cross and be able to defeat our sins once and for all, a victory that would last. This Amalekite victory would last only for a while, and then as they went through the desert for 40 years, they would face other battles with other people, uh, and the Amalekites would would face battle even in the days of uh, King Saul and King David. So, But but Jesus, when he held up the hands, the victory was forever against the ultimate Amalekite, Satan.
0: That, that's really, it's a good point, because there is that difference that... That uh, in, in a way, you know, it's it's sinners, it's our sin that that lifted up our Lord's hands. But but Aaron, who are they are doing a good thing here, and um, in, in that way, it, it's really, I mean, it, it's uh, it, this is almost where typology it gets kind of weird because it's like every character in the story is, is is typologically representing Christ in some way. You know, you've got Joshua, who's I mean, Jesus is his name, and he's out. There. They're fighting. Mm-hmm. Moses is a Christ figure. Aaron's a Christ figure because he's a high priest, and our Lord, of course, we, we we see is is the true ultimate high priest. And then even Hur, right? Who is like not that big of a character, but the, the big thing about him is that he's of the tribe of Judah, like our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, from the, the tribe from which you will get uh, the house of David, which you know Jacob said that the 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 rod the scepter would never depart from. Judah, right? So it's strange, but it's just you you see Jesus four times (laughs) in this story, um, all all pointing ahead to the salvation, which he entirely won on his own. I mean, in in that way, it is a kind of dramatic underscoring of um, just how it's totally all by the grace and work of God.
1: Notice the the stone or rock imagery comes back in too in the fact that uh, Moses uh, placed himself or he was placed on this rock, okay? Uh, and Jesus yeah. is the rock of our salvation, and uh, and and yet we just had him strike a rock and water came out. Well, now here Moses is sitting on a rock or a stone, if you will, and uh, and victory is the Israelites. And you're right, there's the parallels are unprecedented here in in drawing these scriptures to Jesus and then drawing them to our faith.
0: Certainly. Well, okay. Well, let's focus because, okay, that's, we're talking about the, the, the Israelites here, but how about these Amal- these Amalekites, right? I mean, they're, this is not the first time <laughs> that they're going to be mentioned, um, nor is it the last, you know. So, so what's going on with these Amalekites? Like what Why? And also, I mean, it seems like they're kind of getting a little bit of a very particular treatment here. They're in verse 14, you know, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of um, Amalek from under heaven. That this is kind of this ongoing strife with them. And so it says in the end, right, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation, uh, like what, what is it? Like, what, who, who are these people? And what, what's distinctive about them? And what, what do they kind of stand for?
1: Well, they're first mentioned in Genesis 14, 7. But um, it's fair to say that I think these are descendants of Esau, who did not get the birthright of the covenant. And uh, Jacob did. And then he was renamed Israel. So there's this really stark contrast between, all right, here's the people that are blessed because they have faith in me and that is their bloodline and here's the people that didn't get the birthright and here's the path that they went and here they get judgment so there's there's a contrast there between the two uh, bloodlines from Jacob, and uh, so that, that's one way you could look at it. And I think Moses called them the Amalekites in Genesis 14:7 because he, he wrote this many years after uh, that event where there's uh, entangling alliances there, and 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 the end result is Abram ha- Abram had to go in and rescue Lot. But the Amalekites in that chapter don't play a big role; they're just kind of mentioned in passing. Here, they're playing a big role because they're nomadic people, and they're running around the Sinai Peninsula, and they're trying to cause trouble. And God is showing, look, uh, you're going to have to trust me that even though you guys are not trained warriors, I mean, think about that. The only way that they won wasn't because of a fighting tactic that they used or that these were as experienced warriors. It was all related to an 80-year-old guy holding up his arm. And, and, and it's funny how God will show the most powerful uh, blessings through the least of means. An 80-year-old guy holding up a staff, a piece of wood, and two arms, really? But, but that's a mm-hmm. constant theme in Scripture, is I'll do my greatest things through the least of means. What doesn't look all that powerful, I will do very powerful things through. Then that way you'll know it's from me and not from you
0: right well i I mean and i think that you you really you you really see that just in the the image here whether it's um you know in this scene with with moses lifting up his hands or um with the water from the rock that you know we, we kind of repeatedly have these different moments where it's just hey guys moses is the one who's mediating this but it's not moses who's doing this moses isn't powering this thing i mean joshua is not powering this thing right um you know because as soon as moses his arms get weak um jo- joshua starts losing um but moses he can't even hold his arms up right so i mean like there's there's weakness being shown in all of the leaders of israel which which i think is just like you were saying just just highlights to the people hey don't get obsessed with one particular leader. Or think that they're the ones who are doing this. Because I mean, that's going to kind of happen in the future. That people are going to look back on this and they're going to be like, "Oh yeah, it's all Moses," and "Oh yeah, it's all Joshua," and they're they're going to be kind of idolized in different ways as as these you know larger than life heroes. Uh, but the, the the big point here being that hey, it's not none of these leaders. Don't put your trust in princes. Um, it's the God behind them. And so similarly, with what uh, like you're saying, I, I appreciate your explanation with the Amalekites. Um, uh, that you know th- this is um, you know um, Amalek was the grandson of Esau, and so this is yet another people that's kind of connected uh, go- going back to Esau. And so we, we've uh, when we're looking at other scriptures, the the Edomites are kind of the more usual. Uh, connected people to to Edom Esau, uh, but those were kind of the settled people, you know, up north. But yet, you know, even even when they haven't even made it there, they're still striving with Esau. That's um, just kind of uh, in in that way. It does just sort of show that uh, there's this kind of this uh, constant ongoing struggle, right? Like you were saying, between the the blessed and, and the unblessed, um, which is you know building up, of course, to the um, I, mean, I mean, revelation of Christ, which is that He's for all people.
1: And and the Amalekites, it's not as though uh, as I'm sitting here listening to your explanation, it might be really easy to have people out there take a more Calvinistic approach and say, well, they were people oh, all, sure. already condemned. Uh, that's not it here. They didn't fear the Lord. And and, mm-hmm. and if they did fear the Lord, we wouldn't have had this battle. They might have joined forces. Who knows? So it's not as though Esau, even though he didn't get the birthright, was totally out of the picture, or he was totally condemned by right. God. There is an opportunity mm-hmm. here to repent. They did not repent. They faced the penalty of that uh, in, the, in this war, okay? Just as God's chosen people also faced the penalty of their unrepentance several times when they didn't follow God's command. And a lot of times in the Old Testament, it was the Gentiles that often showed greater acts of faith than sometimes God's own people. So I don't want people to think that the Amalekites were predetermined to be a damned people uh, by God himself. Not at all. They had every opportunity to repent. It was a great opportunity to do it. They didn't, they chose war against God's people and they faced the uh, judgment because of that. Yeah, that,
0: that, that's right. And it really, I mean, similar to what was going on with Pharaoh, right? I mean, it's not like Pharaoh was, you know, under mind control and it wasn't fair because he didn't have a real choice or a real chance for repentance, um, you know, but before we had any indication that God was making his heart um, heavy, right, um, or, or, or strong, depending on the, the section there. You know, that was, that was how Pharaoh was bent, you know, and so God sends these these uh, these plagues knowing like, you know, this is how he's going to react of his own free will, Um so yeah, there really isn't like you're saying anything in the text that indicates that like oh well you know this is uh, you know like God you know just you know pulling all the strings and they they have they have like no choice in the matter and it's just kind of un you know unfair or something like that. Now I mean of course uh, on the on the deepest level like you know like well Luther will get to is like well I mean is there really any free will when it comes to eternal things in the human heart like well okay yeah sure you you go there and. I mean, the, the Amalekites didn't have any uh, free will in those terms as, as much as the Israelites did right? because they themselves were uh, you know chosen. but the, the text isn't getting at that kind of um, at that philosophical level. I think that you're right. like on this level it's it's just simply, hey, you know, here comes Israel. Some Egyptians and some, uh, you know, Midianites and um, you know Kenites, like they went along with Israel, right? God allowed that to happen, mm-hmm. allowed the foreigner to to be circumcised and celebrate the Passover, right? But that's not what the Amalekites did.
1: Absolutely, and you just the the and, and granted, yes, this is beyond the scripture, but it does address questions that are often brought up in that uh, in today's world, well, God had it out or, or had it in, excuse me, for the Amalekites. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. Uh, and it's interesting, the choice of uh, the use of free will when it comes to rejecting God's incredible grace and mercy. When when I've had that in Bible studies, says, really? You, you really want to call that free will? Because it sounds like you have the freedom to reject. Well, is that really freedom? Or are you making the the choice to reject God's uh, love for you, and therefore enslaving yourself. So I always find the interesting the use of free will when it comes to rejecting what God uh, has given you unmerited and undeserved. Uh, yeah, you know certainly, you know it's um, well
0: I mean you know like Paul puts it you know in his own way like you're either a a slave to sin or you're a slave to God. You know I mean it's I mean like that's really. The, the, of course, the paradox of freedom that you're only free when when you are totally surrendered to something
1: right I mean so it's, it, it, it's something so, well, to Jesus words in John eight, so if the Son of God has yeah. set you free, you are free indeed, yeah. you are considered sons and daughters, you know so yes <laughs> that's, right. that, that's very, right. that's very right. much so um
0: so I want like okay, so I want to ask uh, like, so one one more thing here, so okay, so you've got this this struggle. With um, you know the the sons of Esau, which um, yeah, I mean it's something that happened, but it's kind of setting up this kind of ongoing struggle and um, you know dramatic turn that's that's going to you know I mean really change things. I mean we, we talked in Revelation how I mean the Edomites are are, are showing up um, in Jerusalem because I mean they're 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 converting right. So I mean it's um I mean it's setting up a, a very big part of the story here already. Um, there's this little name here, right? The Lord. Is my banner, and uh, it, it's interesting when you have these little moments where <clears throat> Moses or or Joshua they, they build a, or set up an altar and and they name a place like that. Uh, what do you what do you think the the significance is here?
1: Well, if you look at the Hebrew, there are some scholars that say that uh, the word uh, banner and staff are very closely related words, okay? Hmm. And uh, so that's one of the things that, that I noted. Um, in fact, I think in the Evangelical uh, Heritage Version, they have a footnote that says the meaning of the Hebrew clause is uncertain. The Hebrew has an unusual form of the word for throne, which looks similar to the word for banner. So, excuse me, I'm sorry, I, I should have drawn banner and throne together, not not banner and um, and staff. It's mm-hmm. throne mm-hmm. and banner that are together. Yeah. And it says uh, the main options, therefore, are hand was against the throne of Yah, short for Yahweh, or a hand mm-hmm. is on the banner of Yahweh. And so I, I thought that was very uh, interesting. And a couple of the other English translations noted that. And then I noted when I tried to do a rough, uh, literal translation, it's or a hand upon the throne of Yah. War in regards to Yah with Amalek from generation to generation. So this is um, this is kind of like a flag. This is I mean notice how powerful uh, the imagery of a flag is, especially as we discuss the many controversies of injustice today in our society. And uh, you know, does the American flag? Stand for you know, truth and liberty. I mean, so and you know, and the and the how offensive flags are to other people, like the Confederate flag. So here, a flag is sure. a very powerful image to show um, and to and to remind the Israelites what happened on on that day. How special this victory that Yahweh gave them.
0: Well, and and I, and I think too, like just that whole idea you know, like a, a hand against the throne or upon the throne, you know, you're just thinking about, you know, like, you know, who, who and, I, and I liked your connection too about like the different flags, right? Like, what, what does that flag represent? Like, you know, who's, I mean, whose power does it represent? And of course, people are talking about, you know, like the Confederate flag, because, you know, whereas it, it was used by some people, perhaps as like a symbol of, you know, independence or, you know, um, Southern spirit or something like that. You know, seeing it as no way it's a symbol of power, particularly of, you know, I mean, racially uh, aggressive power, right, uh, of, of, of white against black. And, and so, I mean, when you're thinking about a flag like that, like who's in power, right, it is it is a very um, it, it's really it t- ties in with the story well. Because who's in power? Who's on the throne? Is it Joshua? No. When Moses' his hands went down, Joshua lost. Was it Moses? Well, no, he grew weak and Aaron and her had to hold up his hands. I mean, it shows who was on the throne and whose flag really was victorious that day. I mean, I think it really complements the story very nicely. Um, but yeah, just, uh, I just I appreciate that comment, too. Just I mean, it really, it really, I, I think, strikes home just thinking about it like through all the, the the chaos and ups and downs and the ways that we're so inclined to, to gripe let's not lose sight of the fact that God is in power and that he's the one who's taking care of us uh, through his Christ our Lord Jesus so thank you so much brother awesome having you on um just yeah oh thank up you for having Christmas me on Christmas. great to be here today. Yeah, yeah, thank you. God bless your people in Beloit. Everybody, that was Pastor Dan Eddy, Pastor at Messiah Lutheran Church in Beloit, Wisconsin. Moving on to Chapter 18 and 19 next time. Special guest, Till then, Pastor A.J. Espinosa,
2: Produced by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting By Strong Word.